thought we'd get started this morning by taking a look at Isaiah 55. Even though we're going to be in John, we'll take a look at Isaiah 55. Where is everybody today? Is it because it's Spring break. Right. Spring break. That's it. It is Oregon spring break. That's right. Well, folks will miss out this morning. So um, let's go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 55. Even my wife's not here this morning. I know. She's with a, a friend of ours from Colorado. Um, since who would like would you guys like to read that maybe can you read Isaiah 55 yeah oh sure <laughs> come all you who are thirsty come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy listen listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will, will grow the pine tree. And instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sound, which will not be destroyed. Amen. Bread of life. <laughs> and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Um, I chose that because uh, one of the things that when I first, you know, I read this many times, read through the Bible many times. A lot of times we make that a discipline. Uh, you know, we get up in the morning, read something from the Old Testament, New Testament, a psalm and a proverb as a practice. That's one of those prescriptive things that people will do, and it's a good practice. Um, and I don't know how many times I read over Isaiah 55 until one day I was stuck in traffic, and uh, I was actually on the I-5 bridge. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be stuck in traffic, I'm going to do something productive. And so I just kind of did the shotgun approach. I just took my Bible and went flop. And this is where it flopped. It was Isaiah 55. And as I read through it, it just it leapt off the page to me. Um, 
in many ways. It's a call um, to come to God and to know him um, and enter into covenant, an everlasting covenant with him. And it's also a statement about how we will um, not fully comprehend God, that it's not possible as creatures, as part of his creation, to fully understand and appreciate the creator. Um, the closest we can come are words like awesome and wonderful and mighty. And we use all of these kind of descriptive terms trying to capture that which we, we have a real hard time saying, let alone truly comprehending. And that's one of the things that, that struck me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And when we come to uh, John, as I um, helped unpack last week and kind of looking at the introduction to John, uh, the first 18 verses is a prologue that was um, added after the main discourse of John. And that the reason it was added was to try and help us get a proper perspective and understanding on who Christ is. Because if John's concern is that we'll know that Jesus is the Christ, that's what he says is his theme in 2031, he says, uh, and I'll repeat this many, many times throughout the course, says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If that's John's intent, one of the things he wants to start out with is uh, having the correct frame of mind. So he's going to present um, his experience with God, his experience with God's Son. And he wants us to, as, as limited as the words can be, he wants us to approach it in the right frame of mind, with the right perspective. And so that's why this prologue is here. Um, last week, uh, I, I, was, I started out and um, I was going to look at trying to fill in some of the gaps and background for you, and then I quickly switched over to a controversial issue, which is the divinity of uh, Christ, the divinity of Jesus, the God-man, uh, and that what we understand is the Trinity, and I kind of did this switch in without proper background and preparation. And so I thought, well, I really need to give you guys a more detailed understanding of what this um, prologue is about and what the specifics of the controversial issues are um, before we get too far down the road. Because if John went to all this work after he wrote it to come back and add this in, we want to understand what he, what he had to say. Yes, sir? Uh, the part where where you're talking about how his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts, makes me think of uh, the, when he's talking to, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, what? And he's like, well, right. how do you understand these things if you can't understand earthly things that I'm telling you? How could you possibly think to understand the heavenly things? Right. And it wasn't that when, in that account, in John chapter 3, it wasn't that Jesus was talking down to Nicodemus. Right. Actually, Nicodemus was one who is really seeking God. And it says that if you seek God, he'll in no way push you off, right? He won't, he won't disappoint you and say, go away from me, you know. Um, 
And so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to help him wrestle through that issue. What does it really mean um, to be born again? How do you really come into communion uh, with God? And, and this is a really, this is one of those things that we puzzle over our whole lives, right? And it, it's no surprise that the first story that John tells is the, the three witness story. The witness of John the Baptist, the witness of Scripture, and the witness of Jesus Himself. Right. So there's there's witnesses, eyewitnesses, there's Scripture witness, and then there's the witness of the works. <clears throat> and so we're going to see that as we get into the first chapter. But when Nicodemus came to Jesus, and when we get to that chapter, we'll fully unpack it. Um, Jesus was trying to help him understand something that's very hard to understand. How can a person be saved? And that's really why I'm going to focus, really drill down on this first couple verses in this chapter, is because I will make this statement. If Jesus is not God, if God did not become flesh and dwell among us, then there is no chance that I could be saved. Because that means that salvation depends upon the works of men. And if salvation depends upon the works of men, I've already disqualified myself. Right? So maybe you guys are good enough, but I know I'm not. So what I'm saying is, is that if this is not true, then what we assert about the divinity of the man, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, then there's no point for most people in continuing and those that think that they should continue are, are misled about their own righteousness. Right? So um, let's go ahead and start there. There's a lot of things I could say about background, but let's, let's kind of pick up where we started last week. And I'm going to go ahead and read through the first 18 verses. And then we're going to focus in on the first verse, because this is the, uh, the one that really helps us to start that, that right uh, approach to who this man Jesus is. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it or comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Tons and tons of theology in here. Let's just start with the first verse. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what have you heard about this verse? I heard that uh, the Word is a way to um, define Greek philosophy about uh, the four elements and the, the controlling the, the, uh, the power behind creation, basically. Right. Right. So the word, which I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring up some Greek. So even though you wanted to have nothing to do with Greek, and you, you may have seen it in some mathematics textbooks, but you really have no interest in it, um, I'm still gonna bring it up. So the reason why is because this is where the arguments um, are focused. They're focused on um, the original language. And they're focused on the meaning of that language. Right? So what I will say is this word right here is in. In the beginning was the word, logos. Um, and the word was with God. And God was the word. That would be a literal reading of that. Right? So we're going to take it apart. And what you're talking about is this noun right here, which is logos, or logos, logos, there's a lot of different ways you can emphasize that, and you'll notice there's a, there's a, an O with a accent mark above it, what this is, is in Greek, this is what they call the article, so if you want to make something definite, as opposed to indefinite, you put an article in front of it, and if you don't have an article, by just surface evaluation, you would say that it's indefinite. So what does definite, indefinite mean? Um, I'll get into that in a second, but let's talk about the word logos. Logos was a Greek word that John chose specifically. So there are a lot of different words he could have uh, chosen um, from his background to express this idea of he's... he's talking about two things. He's talking about word, and he's talking about God. Why did he choose the word logos, which gets translated word? Um, and the reason why is because he wants to express something about the Godhead. Right. So from the very beginning, we can understand that John chose this word um, specifically because he wants us to help, help us understand something about God. This is all about God, right? Uh, is it because um, God is three in one? Yes. So what John wants to help us understand is a very, very complex theological idea that God can be three persons in one being, one essence. So God isn't some nebulous, transcendent, being that is above us, like we read about in Isaiah 55, he actually is with us. That's what John wants to communicate. 
But how can God be with us? How can the Creator enter into His creation? Right? How can that which is um, undefinable, His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts, actually be apprehended or, or uh, grasped by us? How can we actually touch the hem of His garment? Right? In a, in a tangible, real way, and experience the communion with life itself. How do we do that? Um, and so that's what he's trying to describe here. So when I, I say this is all about God, God is preeminent in this sentence. The word God is the word uh, theos right here. This is the um, predicate form of it right here. This is the subject form of it right here. Um, so this whole uh, sentence is all about God. And he uses this word logos to describe some aspect of God. In fact, this aspect is actually God himself. That's why he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That's what we want to get to. Because what people will argue about is they'll argue about this this. Uh, article here, and they'll say, oh, well, in the final sentence, you'll see there's no article, and I'm going to get to that. So that would mean it's indefinite. The word was a God. That's what what the argument is. Is this word actually divine, this logos, or is it a, uh, a kind of higher order of being, but not God himself? That's the argument. And they're going to make it from this, And what John is actually saying is, is that the reason he goes to all this work in introducing this is because he wants us to understand that there's an aspect of God that is God present with us. Because that's what he works down to in verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh. Right. So he wants us to understand who this word is that became flesh. This isn't a God, a demigod of some kind, or a higher being from another planet. Right? or an evolution of man into a god, a kind of god. No, this is God himself that became flesh. That's, that's John's argument here. He's going to work through it for us. He wants us to understand the nature of how God can become imminent with us. Right? And so he chose the word logos, because in the Greek, the word logos had the very kind of meaning that you described. Um, I was doing a little bit of searching around and came up with um, a definition of logos here. It says, uh, in Greek philosophy, logos meant an impersonal but rational ordering principle of the universe. So, and sometimes when you see the word logos in Greek, it gets translated into the English as mind or reason. So, it is the ordering principle behind Um, what you see in creation. So that's why in the next verse it says he was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. Because you can imagine that this mind of God as it's expressed in creation has a specific order associated with it. Right? One of the arguments about creation versus evolution today has to do with what we call intelligent design. That when you observe, I'm going to use the word creation, when you observe creation, what you observe um, speaks of intelligence. It speaks of order and design. 
That's Logos. Logos is the order and design behind the creation. Right? So John chose this particular word because they would understand that it meant something about the, the, um, the person and character of God. That's what he's going to equate it to. He's going to say God has a mind. God has a, a creative order. Right? In this sense, uh, God has an ordering principle behind the universe. And what he says here is that this ordering principle um, was there in the beginning. In fact, it was there before the beginning. So, in the beginning... talking about the beginning of creation? Yes, the beginning of creation. Right, so uh, there is no article on this, so you could say in a beginning. A, a beginning. But how many beginnings are there? Well, to our beginning. Yeah, we only know of one beginning. <laughs> Right? And that was, that was when God spoke and everything came into being. Boom. Right? Now, regardless of your understanding of science, regardless of your understanding of philosophy, regardless of, of how you might imagine um, that what you observe and interact with in reality came about, um, it had a beginning. And this is actually one of the fundamental arguments for the existence of God. So when I teach apologetics, I teach a, a class on defending the faith, um, I go through one of the classic arguments for God. Well, the first classic argument is the, classic, uh, the argument of uncaused cause. It's called the uh, cosmological argument, that everything has a beginning. And if you trace everything back, it's like, okay, this came from that, and that came from this, and this came from that, and you just keep going back. In a chronology, you get to the very first thing. What was before that? God. That's the cosmological argument. The uncaused cause. Right? So what John, and I'm sure he was not, you know, a student of Greek philosophy, but he understood the words that he was choosing. And when he says that um, in the beginning, or in the tense that he uses here, this is uh, an imperfect tense, which we would translate as a past tense. Um, and it's indefinite in time, so we don't know when that occurred. So what this means is actually kind of before the beginning. Before the beginning was the word. Or at that instant of beginning was the word. Because in the beginning it already was. Right. And we understand that he qualifies this in a couple things, a couple verses down. He says, all things came into being through him. So we know that this word was not created. It was there with God before the beginning, before God actually created. And that's why he goes into this second, second phrase here. And the word was with God. So first thing he wants us to know is that this, this, uh, this mind of God, this creative intelligence, the, the order of that which you see creation following was in the beginning. It was there before creation. And that makes sense, logically. If creation has an order, and the ordering of creation um, is the word, then the word had to be there before the creation. Right? The order of creation had to be there. And that's what he's saying. He's talking about the eternal character of the logos, of the word. That's why the first phrase is in there. He wants to establish that Logos is eternal. That it came before all things. Right? 
Then he makes a second statement. And the word was with God. Now, you'll notice that there's a, this is a, a ton, T-O-N, that's an N symbol, uh, theon. And so the, the form of this Greek word is that it's, a, it's a, a, an object of a verb. And it happens in the verb is was. And this right here is what you call a preposition. So prepositions are really, really, really important when we want to understand uh, how language tells us about God and our relationship with him. Because one of the things that Paul talks about in all of his writings is being in Christ. In is a preposition. Right? So um, let me, I actually had it up here and then I closed it somewhere along the line. But let me bring it up here. I'll bring up a circle diagram of prepositions. Does that, actually, does that mean that actually um, the word was inherent to who God is, and so being in Christ, we're, we are um, inherently part of Him? Um, let, me, let, me, let me bring this up and then address that. Okay, I'm going to bring up the circle diagram. Uh, repeat your, state, your question. I was going to say, uh, does it mean in this case that the word, that the word was with God? That, does that mean that the word was inherent to who God is as part of his character? Yes, so yes. So that's why I wanted to describe preposition. So if you can imagine um, that what this is, this circle is uh, the object, right? So we said that the object of that sentence um, and the logos was with God. Or together with God. So um, this this would be the object. This would be God. And what these words are here, and that I know you all are fluent in Greek, and so you understand all this stuff. I'm not trying to impress you with Greek. What this circle diagram represents is how prepositions work with objects. Prepositions are also always associated, usually, so I can't use the word always. They're associated with the object of, uh, of a, a clause. So you have a subject, a verb, and an object. So they're always used in a descriptive way associated with the predicate of a sentence. And in this case, um, uh, the object is God, and this gives you what, what the relationship is. So this, this Greek word here, apol, would be away from. So if you were translating that into English, you would say, from God. This is the one that we're looking at here, which is pros. And it's translated with God. You see the arrow coming in? What that means is, is that it's like face-to-face. -face. It means together with. So what this, is, this, uh, this Greek phrase is telling us back to it here, and, and I realize this is Greek and you're not here to learn Greek, but um, the importance of this is that first John wants to establish the eternality of the, of the, of the word, now he wants to understand, uh, help us understand the relationship, and that that relationship is one in which there is no distance. Together with, face to face, uh, is as close as you can get to God, Right? And if we look at these uh, prepositional constructions here, um, the only greater 
uh, place you could be would be in God. This is the word in, right? So when Paul talks about being in Christ, he's using that preposition right there. And you'll notice that preposition is right smack dab in the middle of the object. How about when uh, we're in his hand? Yes. Would that, would that, apply that, would be, that would mean that this is the, the word hand would be the object, mm -hmm. right? You would be in his hand. Mm -hmm. Now, because we understand that we have skin, and it would be skin to skin, right? What we're talking about is that um, this idea of in is the absolute closest form of communion that you can have. And we understand how this occurs in physical reality is exemplified in a marriage of a man and a woman. Right? That the way God designed things to be is that the man and the woman would be in communion the way that Christ and the church are in communion. That's what it's about. And this idea of the word being face-to-face -face, together with means that this is as close as you can come to God being on the outside. Yeah, that's the next thing that you're going to say, right? So we're saying in the beginning was the word. So we've got this eternal aspect called logos, which... Uh, Pre, um, pre exists before all of creation um, and that this logos is in fact face to face with God right so what were um, first we assert etern uh, eternality then we assert um, the relationship and finally we're going to uh, assert essence that's what John's trying to do in this first sentence. He's going from, let's establish the eternity of the Logos, let's establish the relationship of the Logos, let's establish the essence, the essential character of the Logos. Right. So he's trying to tell us that this word is God. This word is divine in the fullest sense of divine. And there are very, 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 very few translations that... It, that translate it any other way. But there are some heretical translations that would translate it another way. So let me take you to where those arguments of the heretical translations come from. They come from the use of this article. So you could read this as, in the beginning was the word. And the word was uh, with, together with, face to face, the God. And God was the Word. You'll notice there's no article here, a definite article, in front of God. You have one here, you have one in front of Logos, but you don't have one in front of Theos right there. Before I answer your question, um, what that would do is if you were literally translating you would say, of God, because that gives it the indefinite sense. But there are grammatical rules that apply. And I'm going to show you other instances in the Bible where these grammatical rules 
uh, apply universally and people understand them and use it in language all the time. And to not apply that same rule here would be um, trying to make a point from what they call eisegesis. In other words, you're not taking it from the text, rather you're reading it into the text. I was going to say it's kind of like, uh, well, like uh, if I just use myself for an example, I could say that I am Daniel Bristow, mm-hmm. but I am a Daniel. Correct. I'm a, I'm a Bristow. Yes. And and what you just did is you just used a syntactical construction in grammar that is we understand what it means. When you when you don't put the article here, um, you, what happens is is you have two nouns, right, and one verb. And one noun will be the subject, and one noun will be the object. Um, what happens is, is when you have two nouns that are both in the Greek, is what they call an inflected language, the case as to whether it's a subject or an object is determined by the ending. Both of these nouns have the ending of a subject. This is interesting. I'll explain why. Um, so that the word for that is a nominative in any grammatical system. Um, what happens is, is when you have two nominatives, uh, you have to be able to distinguish which one is the subject and which one is the object. The way that you do that grammatically is you drop the article, definite article, from the object. That's called a, a, a predicate nominative. So this is... Grammar 101, right? Seriously, this is if you were to study grammar, yeah, this is what you would get. Um, but they don't teach grammar anymore, so people don't know what predicate nominatives are, right? This is a predicate nominative. So the way that you would translate this is the word was God. Not a God. This is all intentional. This is all Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna take you to another usage of that. One group that must mess this up royally is the Mormons. Yep. Because they, if you believe, you'll become a god. A god. Right. And I, I can't get there with them. I'm trying to understand how they think about it. And so they literally, that last line there. Yes. They mess it up royally so that it fits their theology. Yes. They mess it up royally to fit their theology. So that's what I call eisegesis. You're reading meaning into the text rather than looking at the text to determine the meaning. And what we're going to find out is that John gets to the end of this introduction in verse 18. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, which I want to take that verse apart for you, but we'll do that in time, who is in the bosom of the Father, who is in the Father, he has explained him or exegeted him. The word in Greek that we get exegesis from is that word. That he's the one that explains who God is to us. That we are not to take our explanation of God and read it into the word. Rather, we are to read the word, and that explains God to us. Which is why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we're going to get this fully unpacked throughout the the discourse that John's going to share with us. Because he wants us to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he wants us to fully understand what those terms mean, right? So that's why he starts with this introduction. And to show you that this is a a common construction, 
that if people want to twist it and make it the word was a god, saying, well, you have no article there, so it's indefinite. Um, let's take a look at, I, I, you'll recall that my statement was, is that John and John 1.1 1, 1 is trying to help us understand the eternality of God, that he's eternal, the relationship of the word, or the word is eternal, the word has a face-to-face relationship with God, and that the word was God. He wants to show us something about the essential character of the word, the essence. So this has to do with the Trinity, the idea that that which we would experience from the outside, the Christ, Jesus, is actually God himself. We want to understand that his essential nature is God, is divine. Let me take you to 1 John 4, 8. And I know you all recognize this in the Greek. So let me read it to you. I can read it in Greek. Uh, so 1 John 4, 8. You know this verse. Uh, the one who does not love God does not know God. For God is love. God is love. What is that verse telling me in English? The one who does not love does not know God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. This is telling me something really important about the essential nature of God. That means that that's pretty heavy. It's a very heavy statement. That means that we are capable of knowing God. It, it means that we are capable of knowing God, and that's certainly the focus of First John, is communion, being together with God in the light, for he is light. That means we're in Christ, and he's going to expound that. But what he says is something very important, that if you don't love, then you can't know God, because God is love. It's an essential attribute of who he is. It's not what God does, it's who he is. God is love. So that love itself is part, it's the, the character of God. So are we to use Paul's definition of love then as the definition of love here? Love, patient, kind, and all that. Because yeah. <laughs> yes. So when it talks about love in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that's talking about what that essential character of God looks like. And so if we... Keeps no record of wrongs. Where do you find that in the Bible? God casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. He keeps no record of wrongs. Right? He's patient. He's kind. He's long-suffering. All those things you read about in 1 Corinthians 13, that is who God is. And that's what it means when it says God is love. Now let me, let me show you um, the same kind of construction. Here we have, again, a predicate nominative. Um, This is agape, and y'all recognize agape as a kind of love that is descriptive of the love of God, right? It's the deepest form of love. If you look at, at Greek and you look at the different words for love, this is the kind of love that we understand is God's love. It's it's the essential framework of love, right? Agape. This, I can tell you, this ending means that it's a nominative, 
it's, it, it has a subjective form. Theos is nominative, and we have an article here on theos, but we don't have one on love. This word here is is. So what this would read is, the God um, is a love, if you applied that same rule about indefinite. And you wouldn't know which was the subject and which was the object. Is it a love is God? Or a love is the God? Or the God is a love? No. You apply this grammar rule, which says that when you have a predicate nominative, what that's doing is it's telling you what order in the sentence it comes. That this is the object, this is the subject. God is love. And we understand from what John is telling us in 1 John, the letter of 1 John, he's talking about an essential character of God. And if you don't have that essential character, then you must not be in God. That's John's argument in 1 John. Right? And that we should pay attention to that, because that should testify to us. Now, he also makes a statement in 1 John, if any of you sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ. So he recognizes that no one on this side of uh, eternity is perfect apart from Christ. But when we are with him, we will be as he is. We get that from Colossians. Right? So that means that our ultimate state is to be as he is. Not that we will become God, but that we will share the communicable attributes of God. That when God created man, he created him in his image. That means God communicated part of himself, his essential being, into his creation. This is a miracle. Right? When we understand that man was created, um, he was created with the ability to experience the life of God. Or the capacity. He was created with the capacity to, to be the love of God. So what we understand is our mission as part of the church is that we are to be the hands and feet of Christ. Right? We are to love as he loves. And this is really hard. Right? This is where the rubber meets the road every day. But, and I'm not saying that it's easy, but what I'm saying is that's what it says. And nobody would refute that. And yet if you go to a JW Bible where they, they say uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was together with God and the word was a God, then you come to this very same verse in their Bible, they don't apply the same rule. They would say, no, God is love. They wouldn't say God is a love, or a love is God. They understand the grammar. They just refuse to accept it. So it's okay for us to be unable to attain any kind of uh, actual love of our own, so Christ will do that for us also? Right. Um, yes. Repeat, because that, that's okay. a very heavy statement. Right. Okay. Okay. Let me just read it here. Um, uh, right. Correct. Correct. That we can love as God loves. Yes, that doesn't mean that we're all powerful or that we're all knowing, right? We're, we don't have those attributes. God didn't communicate that to us. Although he did communicate responsibility to us and obligation. He said, you're to be stewards over my creation, that we have a role in creation. 
My question is, uh, anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. Right? Yep. And according to the definition of love that we are going to use here, then I am not capable of any of those things. Yes, I would say that that is true, which is why I would argue that John put this prologue in there to help us understand that God became flesh. That it is not possible for flesh to become God. It isn't possible for a man to become God because I will fail every single time in the final analysis. 100% failure rate. That's what God tells us. And, but he loves us so much that he wanted to provide a way. That's what John's going to tell us, right? We have the great verse, John 3.16, which follows the discourse with Nicodemus, Right? trying to help us understand what God's plan is and the depth of his love towards us. I will take you to 1 John, just two chapters back. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? God doesn't want us to sin because he knows that the nature of sin is destruction. It is like cancer. It will affect every aspect of your being and ultimately destroy you. And if anyone sins, oh, gee, that would be me, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So it describes him as one without sin. And not only is he without sin, but he cares about me and he's going to speak for me. He is my advocate. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Another big theological term. We could do a whole lesson on this. The idea that propitiation is uh, the, the word is sometimes translated satisfaction, where God is the object. And it could also be translated as expiation, where we are the object of Christ's work. And that you can translate it either way, I think is part of the power that God put into language. That what Christ did satisfied the righteous requirement of God upon our lives. He made a righteous requirement. He said, this is what righteousness looks like. This is what truth and justice and goodness look like in myself. And I'm going to declare that as the requirement of my creation. That my creation needs to be, um, needs to be true. It needs to be pure. It needs to be just. It needs to be right and good. He says, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the declaration of God. He so he declares stepped it. in and Pardon? He, so he stepped in and completed He did. He fulfilled that which he declared. The covenant with Abraham, right? That goes all the way back to Adam. Or or when he when he tells when he tells Abraham that when it's the um, when when we were just going over uh, last week, he tells Abraham that uh, or he's talking to his angels mm-hmm. um, right there and he says that uh, that this uh, that Abraham needs to live righteously and justly so that right, right. blessings right. can be blessing blessing communion with God occurs through right relationship with Him number one being in right relationship and being in a state of rightness yourself. So God Himself came to accomplish the righteousness and justice that was part of that initial covenant with Abraham. Yes. So now you know the power of the redemptive act of Christ. The power was not only to complete in creation the declaration of God 
perfect. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father to the point where he will give everything in this creation for you. And what John here tells us, he says, he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not only ours, but for those of the whole world. That's God. Right? And that if that God did not become flesh, I am lost. I need that God. And that's what John wants us to understand as we move through his uh, discourse, his disclosure of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to know that this is God become flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, not a God. The Word was God, and that Word became flesh. When it says was with, when you showed that preposition box, so yeah. circle thing there, and the arrow goes right up to it. Yes. That's, that's, that's God the Son and God the Father. How, how do we come to Christ? How do we come to God? We have to come face to face with Him. This is the nature of repentance. And I went over it. Sorry. The nature of, I'll, I'll, I'll close here. The nature of repentance, this face to face, is when we come to God with full, truthful disclosure, agreement with Him about what He says is true about Himself and what He says is true about us. And we turn from our declaration of good and right to His declaration of good and right. And in that, we come under His covering which is part of uh, that propitiation. Yeah, we'll, we'll unpack this. I realize I'm throwing out a lot of heavy theology, but the reason I'm saying it is because John throws out heavy theology as introduction. This is really good. Because it's going to help us understand what it is that he's got to say. Let's go ahead and close here. Lord, uh, thank you for um, your grace in giving us these moments to uh, start unpacking your word. We know that it is incredibly deep, that there's so much in here that we could study our whole lives and still still be unworthy of unlacing your shoe, Lord, um, that we can't even do what a slave is hired to do. And Lord, we're going to read about that as we continue on. And Lord, we're just so thankful that you are truth and grace and that you've come to us uh, to save us. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us this week, that you would protect us, uh, that we live in a, uh, a world, the kingdom of the world, which is evil and, and uh, wrought with sin. And Lord, uh, help us be protected from that and delivered from that. Lord, uh, we ask for your provision and that uh, the very breath that we take is from you. And we need to understand that and embrace that and, and thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, for your provision for us. And Lord, we thank you for your service and your son, Christ Jesus, who came to uh, show us perfectly who you are and to um, take our sin and bring us into communion with you. Lord, as we go from here to the service this morning, we ask for your blessing on Bob as he uh, presents your word, as he uh, discloses to us the gospel of Mark this morning. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit work powerfully in him. Lord, uh, give us ears to hear and a heart to receive that which you have to say. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.